morning. Is everybody all right? Isn't it funny, like the, the rain comes after so many sunny days and you're just kind of like, ah, it's nice. No? Just me. You can actually wear pants in comfort. And when I preach, I feel like I have to wear pants. It's like a prerequisite. So I'm glad. Thank you, Lord. What an introduction. Hey, I'm good at this. Can we take a little quick sidestep here? Because I love what's going on here at Central. There's something that God's doing, and you you witnessed it on the stage this morning. In Romans chapter 8 and in many places, um, there are verses like this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is a passage about the fact that you and I, when we accept Jesus, are adopted into God's family. So who does it make the most sense for in the world? to be adoptive parents, Christians. Because that's what God does for us. And so something beautiful is happening here because family after family are adopting children into their homes. And to me, I look at that as, as, as you are men and women of God and go, yeah, that, that's just beautiful. So I praise God, uh, as we all do with the families who are adopting little children into their homes, and we get a glimpse of the gospel in that, and we saw it again this morning on the stage, and it's amazing. So praise God for, for the McEachrins and the faith journey they're on to do such a venture and others. We are in Genesis chapter 42, and to start off, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about my past, because you can see I've entitled the sermon, Examination, Confronting the Past. When I was 14 years old, my friend and I, who attends here, by the way, uh, when we were 14, um, we got into a little bit, a little habit, like, you know, a lot of young guys and girls just really into cars, and when you're 14, you're, you're too young to drive a car legally, but... Why would we let that stop us? And so we, you know, we were 14 and naive, but we would wait for our parents to go to bed. I would sneak out of my house. He would sneak out of his house. We would get his dad's keys to his truck. We would put it in neutral. We would push it out of the cul-de-sac, and we would hop in, and we'd cruise. And, 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 and the, the more times we did this, the bolder we got, so much so that we said, we've put a real dent in the gas, you know, the gas gauge. We better go fill this thing up. So... We're 14 pulling into gas stations and trying to guess how much, with our 14-year-old math, you know, how, how much gas we have to put in so that his dad would never know, right? And uh, we would do this time and time again. On one particular occasion, he invited me to join him to drive his sister's car one night. It was a standard, I believe. I, that, and I, I couldn't or I didn't. And... Uh, The next morning I go to school and I see him in the hallway. He finds me. He is pale-faced. And he said, I crashed my sister's car last night. Uh, He he sideswiped a semi-truck trailer. That causes some damage. Enough damage that the police come. You know, that kind of crash. And the police came. Can I see your license, your registration? So into the cop car he goes, to a holding cell he goes, his parents get a phone call, his dad says, well, I'll make one trip and I'll make it in the morning when I take you to school. So he spent the night there and 
of course, he gets in the school and he finds me, tells me my sister's upset because I crashed her car and she knew that we drove together, so she told mom and dad and your parents are getting a phone call. I'm like, what? I had nothing to do with this. So I go home from school that day, the awful day at school, obviously. Go home, just, man, just freaking out. But can't bring myself to tell my mom. Just can't, can't do it. She's there, I'm there. Time goes on, time goes on. It's getting close to dinner. Have not told her. Phone rings. Mom, okay, here's the thing, right? Just last seconds. Here's the thing, we were driving this car. Anyways. The first and only time, if you can believe it, that I was grounded in my household. Many spankings, but... <laughs> only, remember those days? Spanking days? I hear they did that back then. Um, but uh, grounded for driving that car. But th- I, I look back and there were just all these escalating circumstances. That's really happening in this text where Joseph meets his brothers and puts them through a series of tests that really are just these escalating circumstances. The intensity is growing. The brothers are sweating. It is intense. And, 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 and so we find ourselves here. I'm going to give you all three points right off the bat. And uh, it's about three different groups of people. And then we'll look at them together one at a time. First, we're going to look at the brothers. Through the whole text, we're going to look at the brothers. And here's the truth about them. Here's what's happening in the text. They become freed from the sins of their past. And this is a truth that um, we can relate to in Christ. Therefore, the first point is that we are freed from the sins of our past. Secondly, as we take a look at Joseph, through the whole text, we see him forgiving the hardships of his past. And in Christ, we find that we can do the same, forgive the hardships of our past. And thirdly, we look at Jacob. Although he does not do this well, we learn something of what we can do, and that is that we can face today with future hope. We can be facing today with future hope. And so we look at the brothers, we look at Joseph, we look at Jacob, and we see all of these things happening in the text. And I have to talk about, again, a universal... um, uh, thing that's happening throughout, it's, it's being woven throughout the whole Joseph story, and that's the, um, the doctrine of the providence of God. And I've, I've been giving you, giving you um, slightly di- different wordings on this every time I've been getting up, and I'm going to do that again from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It, it defines providence this way. God, from whom nothing is hidden, and whose power is surpassingly great, wisely oversees and sovereignly controls all creation. Okay, follow me here. It goes on. In so doing, he attends not only to apparently uh, momentous events and people, but also to those that seem both mundane and trivial. Thus, while he holds the lives of both kings and nations in his hand, God also concerns himself with the welfare of the lowly and meek. Indeed, so all-encompassing is God's attention to events within creation that nothing, not even the casting of lots, happens by chance. Meaning everything is in the sovereign control of God from what seems like the menial to the ruling of nations, all under God's carrying on kind of control. 
So not only was God ruling the actions of Joseph's brothers, but God was ruling the famine as well. If you read Psalm chapter 105, it talks about Joseph. And this is what it says, starting in verse 16. When he, that's God, summoned the famine on the land. Psalm 105 says, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph. God sent the famine. God sent Joseph. This is the providence of God in this story that meets us here in this moment in chapter 42. It says, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people sent, set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. That's the story of Joseph. And there's two huge things for us to hear. God sent the famine and God sent Joseph so that he could do his work in these circumstances. Do you hear that and believe that? God works through everything. Where the family sees events in Egypt as affliction and trouble, Joseph is actually strategizing to bring about their good. Here's something really crazy about Genesis chapter 42. The providence of God is happening kind of on the macro view. He brings the famine. He brings Joseph to Egypt. But now that we get a microcosm of that providence here with the knowing Joseph and the unknowing brothers, right? Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And he strategizes events for their good. We're supposed to look at this story and say, this is how God acts with us. We have no clue what's going on, and it seems intense and crazy. But there's a, know, there's a knowing God in the unknowing humanity who's working all of this, ultimately for good. So let's first look at the brothers. Before we do, why don't we open in a word of prayer. God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the promises that we can read and just go, yes, thank you. Thank you also, Lord, for the things you say in your word that make us scratch our heads for a while. Thank you for the things in your word that are truth, and sometimes it takes us a long time to get there, to see or to understand, and there's so much of that going on in this text. So not only are there hard things to understand in your word, Lord, but, but there's a feeble man preaching it this morning, and I just feel... Uh, yeah, I need you, Lord, to move. I've prayed it before, I've said it before, but I feel like a beggar who's found bread in your word, and I just want to share it with other beggars. Would you be glorified this morning? Amen. Ah. Firstly, these men and us can be freed from the sins of our past. So anybody who needs to hear that this morning. And there's this, this theme that's happening in this with the brothers, and it's really fascinating and kind of fun to watch. It's the thing about they've had a sleeping conscience, nearly, worse than that, maybe nearly dead conscience. And through the workings of Joseph and ultimately God, it's going to be awoken through chapters 42, 43, 44. And there's this thing called conscience, which is a common grace. And a common grace is the fact that we've had sunshine like crazy over the last couple of weeks. And when the sun 
has risen in the morning. It's risen on everybody in Chilliwack. You notice that? That's a common grace. It didn't just rise on the really good people with little storm clouds over the really bad people. God in his common grace, in his grace for all, allowed the sun to rise and it shone on everybody. The same thing happens with conscience. Everybody's born with it. Everybody's born into sin because of original sin. We're fallen and we're born into it. We need to be made right with God. And the way for that to happen is Jesus. That's for everybody. And yet everybody is given conscience. We see this in Romans 1. In creation, we should see that there's a creator. And in the makeup of humanity, we should see that there's these promptings that draw us to God. There's a conscience in all but see, these brothers, like many of us, when circumstances come, maybe the first time we confront a situation, we go, oh, I shouldn't do that. There's something telling me I shouldn't get involved in that. I shouldn't do this thing. But maybe the second time we go, ah, you know, I thought maybe I shouldn't, but maybe I want to. No, I won't. The third time we, we come by, we're like, we've, we've kind of, with, with poor reason, given ourselves excuses not to listen to our conscience. Or we feel like we've done something wrong and we need to make it right. We need to bring about... Um, we need to rectify the situation. So we, can either, we can either listen to conscience or squash it down. And so there's this issue of conscience happening here for these brothers because this is more than 20 years after they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They went home with a robe dipped in blood that was Joseph's and said, look, Dad. And he summarized, a wild beast must have got at him. And they go, yeah. And they held that secret for more than 20 years. Conscience had been pricked, but they had pushed it down. They did not speak of it. Now I want you to look at the very first verse of chapter 42. Look what it says. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? We can pass by that verse really quickly, but can I, can I tell you what I think is happening right there? These are grown men. Joseph is in his early 30s. Some of these brothers are 40s, 50. These are, these are men. They work the land. These are tough guys. There's a famine happening. They know there's food in Egypt, and they're sitting around looking at each other. Jacob brings up the word Egypt, and what flashes into their minds? We sold our brother to Midianite traders, taking him to Egypt. They dart glances at each other. Their dad's looking at them. What are you... What are you sitting around looking at each other for? There's food in Egypt. And they stare at each other. Conscience pricked. A story they had squashed year after year after year. It's coming to the surface. It's being brought up. Egypt. When they, think e when they hear Egypt, they think Joseph. And Jacob's wondering, why are you guys looking at each other? See, these are not men without consciences. Their consciences were darkened, but not dead. If they were dead, they wouldn't be sitting around looking at each other. They would have confidently and decisively made their way to Egypt to buy grain and headed back, and that would be the end of the story. But it isn't the end of the story. Their consciences were pricked. They felt badly. This was heavy. See, God had other plans for them. In fact, 
by the providence-woven theme throughout the whole Joseph narrative, not only does God bring Joseph to Egypt, but brings the famine as well, paving the way for his brothers to come and for repentance and restoration to take place. Conscience leads them to sin being addressed, but it wasn't enough for them to just have conscience. They needed circumstances to get it out of them, right? And a series of tests come. Look at these tests. We're going to look at Joseph closely in a moment, but we're going to just look at the, the, the tests that he brings to the brothers and how they experience them. Look at this. Joseph speaks harshly to them and accuses them of being spies. That's the first thing that he does. Then he threatens to keep all of them in custody except one who could go home and bring Benjamin back as proof that they weren't spies. Then even heavier, he throws them all in prison for three days Then he graciously lets all of them return home except one. He holds Simeon so that they would come back. And then he returns the money they paid for the grain back in their bags. We're going to look at Joseph, like I said. It may look like he's being harsh, but do you not think that Joseph knew what three days in a dungeon would do? He knew what that was like. He had been in prison years. He knew God would use that to break them. And he's facing them to face their past. Previously, they put more value on money than on family. They sold Joseph for silver. He's put money back in their sacks. He's got Simeon in custody. What are they going to do? Are they going to take the money and run? Or have they changed? Have they grown? These are wise, decisive decisions that Joseph's doing. But we'll look at that shortly. I want to tell you a story about a friend who comes here. His name is Kyle. And a few weeks ago, he was telling a little bit of his story. And I'll give you the super Coles Notes version of it. Um, Grew up going to church, Christian family. Uh, At one point, just uh, got into drugs, got into selling drugs, got charged for trafficking drugs. At one point I was asking him when we were talking about crossing the border and he said, well, I can't cross the border. I'm like, why can't you cross the border? He's like, well, I got a trafficking charge. I was like, how how did, what? How did you get a trafficking charge? I trafficked drugs. Oh. Okay. Eventually went into recovery, got plugged into a church in the Tri-Cities area, I believe, And God absolutely transformed his life. And the summary, you know what the summary he gives? What Kyle would give of the story, he would say, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. I'd I'd never want to walk through that again. But I'm grateful for it. I see God using my sin, my decisions, and bringing good out of it. I see the Lord's hand in the things that I did, the things that I needed to learn in my life. I was not learning, and he brought them about through hardship and things I would never choose and never want. But they came, and he used them, and I'm grateful. And I say, Amen. What a gracious God who uses the hardships of life for beautiful the work that needs to be done in our lives. That is happening here for the brothers. Look at their first encounter with Joseph. Do you see what they say about themselves? Verse 11. Of all the things that these guys could say, you know what they say to Joseph, their brother? 
we are honest men. I mean, if you've been following this series at all, it's a comedy. Okay, we could say one or two things. We're not spies, we're honest men. That's the thing that they offer, and they're saying it to Joseph, the guy they sold into slavery, the guy they went back and told their dad, yeah, he got eaten by by a beast, right? He got killed by an animal. They've held that, and yet the thing that they offer to this uh, governor, to this prime minister, is we're honest men. Well, then they spend three days in prison. What do they say in verse 21? Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. We didn't listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Joseph understands he'd been using an interpreter to speak to them, but he hears it all, and he weeps. See, their consciences are alive and kicking. They are racked with guilt, in the co- which in the context of the Bible puts them in the way of grace. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll says. When God activates a seared conscience, we begin to gain a different perspective. Sometimes we become victims of the kind of treatment that we have meted out to someone else. When the harm, the hurt, or the pain that we brought on someone else is visited upon us, something begins to change inside us. God begins to break through our hard shell and softens our hearts that had become callous. See, these guys didn't know if Joseph was even still alive, but what they did know is that they were in great distress, and it reminded them of the distress that they had caused their brother over two decades earlier. Those emotions were being brought up in them and they were feeling some of the anguish that their brother must have felt. They saw it on his face. They saw him plead and beg for his life. They didn't listen. They let him go. And now they're in that circumstance and and they are breaking. And now we need to take a quick sidestep and do a... um, talk about an issue that's happening here because they summarize that is why this distress has come upon us, meaning we did a bad thing, therefore a bad thing is going to happen to us. And we, we, just, we, need, to, we need to understand this rightly, okay? So let, let's look at the story of Job, for example. Job's friends assumed calamity be, uh, came upon him because of past sin. But, but God, in the telling of the story in Job, makes it clear that's not the case. That's not why calamity came upon Job, because it was being meted on him for past sin. In John chapter 9, a blind man approaches Jesus, and the disciples say, who sinned, him or his parents? Because he's blind. So who's the sinner? His parents or or, or him? Right, a bad thing happened, right? right? That we would see as a negative. What's the sin? And Jesus says, no, it's not his sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus spits in dirt, makes mud, puts it in his eyes, tells him to go wash, and the man can see. People are amazed. God used this man's blindness that became sight to impact people for God's glory. And that was the purpose of his blindness. Not every wrong has a not everything that happens has, has, has well, because of this sin or that sin. We live in a broken world. But, all that being said, over here, in this case, the brothers see the connection. There is a correlation. They no, knew they were guilty. Reuben, Reuben, in verse 22, says, Now there comes a reckoning 
for his blood, meaning we spilt his blood. We are guilty, that's on our hands, and we need to pay the penalty. He just knew that. He understood that. Sin equals death. But God wasn't leaving them there. He was leading them to confession and repentance and salvation in the atoning blood of the one who was to come. Though their sins were like scarlet, they would be made white as snow in Jesus. These men would not only be redeemed men, although that alone is unmerited grace and incredible mercy, but these ragtag men would become the revered fathers of the tribes of Israel. It's just an amazing transformation story. That is coming for them, and God is using this to bring that about. In verses 27 and 28, it says, their actions against Joseph weigh heavily on their consciences, or or that's the summary story, and the concept that they cannot avoid impending punishment for their sins runs through this story. In verse 28, they declare, what is this that God has done to us? Not only are they feeling the full brunt of their own guilt, of their consciences, they are also sensing God. God's hand in it. What is God doing is the question they're asking in verse 28. Have you ever been in a circumstance in your life, surely you have, where at some point you just say, God, what are you doing? Because I don't understand any of this. What are you doing? That's the situation these guys are in. And God, by his word, is graciously giving us an insight into a hardship that we're supposed to learn from. See, sin and guilt must be dealt with one way or the other. And the grace of God was poured out in the sacrificial, propitiating, expiating death of Jesus on the cross. Propitiating means that on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus, meaning he could The penalty for sin could be paid. Jesus was taking that on. And God could still be holy because he could forgive sinners. How can he forgive sinners? He's perfectly holy. It has to be dealt with. Well, he dealt with it with Jesus on the cross. That's the propitiating work of Jesus. And it's an expiating work. It's the wiping away of sin. Jesus came so that there could be a way that your guilt-wracked consciences could be wiped clean that we could be freed freed from the sins of our past see for their their crime against their brother they deserved punishment or imprisonment and they knew it and instead they found unmerited favor an undeserved expression of grace what they found rather than punishment was uh, that they rightfully deserved they, they instead they wound up with freedom they wound up with sacks full of grain And all of their money returned. Is that not what guilty sinners like you and me receive from God? Is it not? Rather than the just penalty for sins we've committed, we find freedom, provision, and blessing at the hands of the one we have sinned against. For those who approach God for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins, we don't find a God who rejects us for the things we've done, but a loving, heavenly Father who who pursues us. It's not resentment that we receive from Jesus. It's grace. And the Holy Spirit does not withhold from us a form of punishment, but empowers us mightily. You and I have a way in Jesus to be freed from the sins of our past. But, if we have a sin-wracked 
conscience this morning that is something that needs to be addressed. The brothers' lives have not yet been transformed. It's in, it's in motion. They have not come clean. They've started to. They've confessed it to each other. And I wonder, are you, is anybody here, which of us, how many of us, things from our past that we just try to move on from, but our conscience is nagging us. The Spirit is prompting us. may feel too costly to make right, and so we just hold on to it, and yet that's a burden, that's a weight. We carry it around. We do not live in the freedom that Christ offers us. We do not live with joy, inexplicable, because We're carrying these things around that Jesus is saying, I made a way that these be addressed and dealt with in your life. I plead with you to bring these things to the cross. I plead with you to make these things right in your life with others. Isn't it wild that some of us come to church with grievances against others? That we have not yet confessed that we have not made right, in our families that we gather together with, that we have not confessed things that we need to do, in our marriages that we have withheld things that we have not confessed. God's inviting us to bring those things into the light, have our consciences cleansed, have our spirit work in us mightily. And I plead with you, if your conscience is pricked this morning, If you look at your life and see thing after thing, intensity after intensity, God may be working in you to bring these things to the fore that you may have joy and have it abundantly, that you may have peace. I plead with you to do that, to live in that. Secondly, so quickly, forgiving the hardships of our past is what Joseph has done here. See, this encounter with his brothers with Joseph, he's been in slavery and he's come to the Pharaoh's court in 20 years, slavery, prison, and now he's serving as the governor. And a question here in all of this time is why does Joseph conceal his identity? Many people look at this and they say, you know what? He's angry, he's bitter, and he's playing with them. That's not the case. In, in verse 6, these brothers come and they kneel before Joseph. You remember chapter 37? He's 17 years old. He goes to his brothers. I had a dream. Your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. Remember that dream? And and the brothers were bitter and angry. Chapter 42, the brothers come from Canaan. They bow before the governor, and Joseph recognizes this dream has been fulfilled. Do you not think if God gave him a dream that, that was meant to both save a nation, Egypt and the surrounding nations, and his brothers were to come and bow to him, that he would not give him all the wisdom to carry through what God's redemptive plan and purpose was in all of this. Joseph is working with wisdom. Joseph is working decisively to bring about their good. We know that God was leading him in this because everything God led Joseph to was culminating 
in this. I have a friend. Uh, he comes over sometimes, and it's kind of become a comedy. We, we hear the latest from his book of grievances. He talks about this book of grievances where he would write, um, if he were to write a book, all the things that people have done that really it's just annoyances, like the person in the left lane on the highway driving parallel at like 95 with the person in the right lane. And he, he would come and he would just, that, he's going to add it to his book of grievances, the person who drives in the left lane the exact same speed as the person in the right lane, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of funny. But here's what Joseph did not do. He had no book of grievances. It had been ripped. It had been dealt with a long time ago. At the end of chapter 41, he names his first son Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship. God graciously helps Joseph forgive all that was in the past. So when his brothers came forward, he could work out of grace, out of mercy, not out of resentment and hate. Keeping a list of grievances or people who have wronged us. See, the question is, what do you do about the wrongs that have been committed against you? Joseph didn't do that. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome uh, by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Joseph did here. I wonder, is that, what, is that how we live? Is that how I live? Is that how you live? Through the blood of Jesus, seeing all that he's done for us, are you able to extend it to others. Can you do it? One of the surefire ways that we know that the gospel has sunk deep into our hearts is the way that we handle people who wrong us. Do you realize that? We sinned this much against our Savior and he died for us and forgave us. When somebody forgives this, sins this much against us, how can we not forgive? You know what it means when we take matters into our own hands, when we hold on to all the things of our past, when we have a list? You know what it means? It means we don't trust God. Verses like this in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says God. You know what that means for us? We don't have to worry about it. We can trust the one who is greater, the one who is sovereign, the one who providentially is working through everything, and we give it to him and say, you are a just judge and you will deal with it rightly. Now I'm left to just bless. I'm left to just extend mercy. And you know what comes later in Romans chapter 12? By doing good deeds to people who have wronged you, you will heap burning coals on their heads. What does that mean? It means that actually by your goodness, you might actually shock these people into go, waking up to the mercy of God and saying something's different here about them. But my question is, do you believe the gospel so much that you have been forgiven this much and that God, who is just and will deal with everything, can help you forgive this much? Do you believe it? Or do you have a list? Do you grind your teeth or do you think, if, this pers if I ever saw this person in the grocery store, they would get hit with oranges or whatever, I don't know. Like, I would toss my basket. Right? If I saw this, if I came across this, do you have that person? The gospel calls us, 
Joseph miraculously is able to name his son. After all that's happened to Joseph, have you been sold by family into slavery? Have you? Have you been wronged by a woman who accuses you of being adulterer when she was the adulterer? Have you gone to prison for that? Have you suffered in a dungeon? Joseph had a son born to him and said, you know what, I'm going to name this first son the most important thing I need. I need to know and believe in my heart. God has helped me to forgive my past. Everything so that I can live out in mercy. It's what he's done. We're not even going to get to point three because our time of singing worship together this morning is so good. We have to do that. God is so gracious to us, is he not? God has been so gracious to you. Band, why don't you come up? We're going to sing a final song. But I want us to contemplate these things as we do. And they're very, very different because there's these brothers who have wronged somebody and their consciences are kicking. And there's a man who has been so wronged who is able to work out of mercy. And is that not what our Savior has done for both of us? He tells us, bring these things to light because I will give you a surpassing joy and peace in coming clean because I forgive. And I will equip you to love people who have so wronged you because I'm going to show you how gracious I've been to you. Let's pray together and respond and worship. Why don't we stand as we pray? Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word this morning. It is so good. It is so hitting. And God, we just want to respond to you this morning in the way that seems fit. I love, God, that your spirit moves and I actually love the fact that it's probably a pretty uncomfortable room this morning because there are a couple huge elephants in the room for many of us. Many of us are grinding our teeth through life when you call us to lay our lives down for your glory. Oh God, you call us to so much more by coming clean about past and walking in future hope that you promise us and walking in peace and joy by forgiving the things that people have wronged against us, by looking to the cross and seeing you forgiven so much more. Jesus, you are glorious, and for that we come before you this morning confessing and worshiping in your glorious name, Jesus. Amen.